This has been a big week for our staff, for our pastors. Uh, this is the week that all four of our new pastors jumped on board. I want to introduce them again to you just by way of picture, and then in a couple weeks we'll have a dedication service for them right here. Uh, first of all, again, we're excited to have Pastor Ted Tanzi joining us as our pastor of counseling ministry. Uh, obviously, Ted had a great mentor. Uh, he has been doing this for a number of years, really for more than 10 years. He's been a contract counselor for Bible Center, and now we're privileged to have Ted as our counseling pastor. He is currently in Israel, so he's going to have a lot of great illustrations and pictures when he returns, um, but I'm excited to have Ted now on board. We also have Josh Willits. Josh Willits is our middle school pastor. Our middle school uh, is bigger than many or most churches in West Virginia. And we realize we really want to care not only for the middle school students, but also for their families. If we can reach out and really wrap our arms around their families, Josh is excited to be on board now. We also have our pastor of group life, Pastor Mike Graham. Pastor Mike Graham is in the process of going back and forth. Uh, he got his office this past week, is already building relationships. I won't make him stand, but Pastor Mike and his family are down here at the front. If you just wave your hand. Yes, n nothing more cheesier than that, right? Good, good. Mike and Jen and their, their, their children, Luke and Lexi, excited to have him on board. Mike was one of our group's pastors in uh, Louisville. And he actually started the church where I served for almost five years uh, while I was there. And then our fourth uh, pastor on board is Pastor John King. Uh, pastor John King is coming to us, as you know, from California, having served there with Sean for the last five years or so. And he stepped in to take Lee's spot as executive pastor. Now, you know Lee is still around as our director of development, interim principal in the school. We're going to try to find something to do for Lee for the next 30 years. There's always going to be something new. Uh, but John and I actually grew up, uh, part, part of our growing up together at Twin City Bible Church in Nitro. Uh, his dad, uh, before his father passed away, his dad was my executive pastor when I was a kid. And it's now a privilege to serve in the same church with the gentleman I grew up with who loves the Savior, loves the church. And I thought it'd be great to have John read the scriptures for us this morning. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. It's good to be here. Would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? We're in Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit and its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, John. Today I want to tell you the story of two men, two different people who lived drastically different lives. The first man, his name is Rick. We're going to call him Righteous Rick. The second man, his name is Will, and we're going to call him Wicked Will. At the very outset of this message, if your name is either Rick or Will, I apologize. I just needed names that started with R and W. Rick, righteous Rick is a young man, 
and he's having a hard way to go. He's having a hard life so far. Uh, recently lost his job in the profession that he's in. Jobs come and go. He's struggling financially. Now, he's trying to care for his mom who's been in and out of the hospital and he really wants to be married, uh, but he's having difficulty landing that love of his life, finding that girl uh, that the Lord wants him to have and that'll even give him the time of day. And so he struggles a lot with temptation, struggles a lot with the pressures of life, and every day is a fight for righteous Rick, um, but he's satisfied. He loves his Savior. He's constantly in the Word. He's in a group at church, and the group helps him with the Word and apply God's Word to his life. He knows his purpose and mission for life is to glorify God. And one day, God is going to resurrect his body. He'll have a new body in the new heaven and the new earth. And he has satisfaction and hope, not in his circumstances, but in the promises of God. The other gentleman I'd like to tell you about is Will. We're going to call him again Wicked Will. Will has a great life. Will graduated top of his class. Will recently started a business. He landed the girl. Will has all the money in the world that he needs, but Will is the opposite of Rick. He's not satisfied. He's been to church a time or two, and he's read the Bible a little bit, heard the Bible, but he really struggles seeing the relevance of the Bible to his life. He has no idea why he's on the earth. He thinks he's just the product of chance, and he's not even sure where he's going to go or if anybody goes anywhere when they die, and Will is unsatisfied, unfulfilled. He is empty looking for answers. Now today as we look at these two fictional characters or we look at two types of people, I think it's helpful for us to ask certain questions. How can we be more like righteous Rick and less like wicked Will? Why is it so important and why does God even care that we experience fulfillment and satisfaction in life? What does the Bible have to do with this anyway? If you have your outline, let me invite you to take your outline or you can follow along on the app. And we're going to see how the Bible is the key to blessing. The Bible is the key to blessing. In Psalm 1, we're going to look again the tale of these two men. And I'll explain it a little bit more in a moment. Telling the story of two comparisons... Uh, comparing two roads or, or two lives is common in Scripture. Uh, Robert Frost in his The Road Not Taken writes, Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. Jesus, Jesus often used this form of teaching when he compared in the Sermon of the Mount the two gates, the two roads, the two trees, the two houses, the two foundations. And so comparison is, is common in literature. When we read the Psalms, it's helpful to know that the Psalms use the device called parallelism. Often you have one line of a Psalm that parallels another line of the Psalm. And Psalm 1 is unique in that it's not that every line parallels the next, but it's kind of like this, showing a picture up on the screen of two or of a piece of paper folded in half from top to bottom. 
Use your imagination for a minute and picture Psalm 1 through 3, Psalm 1, 1 through 3 on the top of the paper and Psalm 1, 4 through 6 on the bottom of the paper. And so on the outline that's in your bulletin, you'll see this week we drew some unusual arrows just to show you how they connect. Really essentially, verse 1 and 2 parallels verses 5 and 6, and verse 3 it parallels verse 4. So it folds open, and that's the best way for us to understand Psalm 1. The first person that Psalm, to Psalm 1 describes is the righteous person. Number one, the righteous person. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This first description of the righteous person is that they separate from wicked influence. They separate from wicked influence. Some people see a digression, a progression, or really a digression in verses uh, 1 and 2. In verse 1, you notice that he says the righteous man uh, doesn't walk in the way of sinners. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. And then he doesn't sit in the seat of sinners. I think there is a progression there, for that's often how our lives digress into sin. When I was on vacation, I didn't digress into sin, thankfully, but I did digress into laziness. I had this big plan that on the first day of vacation, I brought all of my uh, running clothes, running shorts, running shoes. I brought it all. On the first day down in Florida, I took off and I ran several miles. And I was determined to keep up with my running regimen. Well, the second day, you know, it's like, well, it's vacation. I won't go for a run. I'll go for a walk. So I put my running shoes on and just went for a walk. By day three or day four, the walk just, you know, what's the big deal about walking? I'm walking around anyway a lot with my family, uh, especially, you know, at Disney World. So I don't think I'll walk. I'll just, I'll just kind of just chill out. And then three weeks go by and you've gone from running to walking to standing to being that lazy guy who's drooling on the beach somewhere. Uh, that's kind of how life works. And so he says that the righteous person isn't like that. He, he separates from wicked influences, wicked counsel, wicked worldview. Eugene Peterson in The Message uh, summarized it this way. I, I laughed the first time I heard it. He says, and this isn't a translation. The message is never intended to be a translation. It's a paraphrase. He says, how well God must like you. You don't hang out at Sin Saloon, you don't slink along Dead End Road, and you don't go to Smart Mouth College. There's definitely a separation from those things. But the wicked man also is like a fruitful tree. In verse 3, it says, He is like a tree planted by streams of waters that yields its fruit in his season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. He's connected like a tree is connected to water. He's connected to truth like a garden is, is connected to an irrigation system. He's, he's deeply rooted in something that gives him life. You gardeners or farmers understand this. Uh, while we were away on vacation, we had a, a water 
uh, not a water main, but the water uh, meter broke in our front yard. And so water spewed out of our front yard for two solid days before they fixed it. Thankfully, it was all on West Virginia water. I didn't have to pay any more money for it. We already got our water bill. We don't have to pay anything for it. It's on their side. But you do notice now around the left side of my yard that there's a, a nice big green patch uh, from a couple weeks ago. Sarah told me yesterday that there's two flowers that were struggling a little bit. Now all of a sudden those flowers are blooming. Everything is green right there because for two days they had a stream of water. And God says that's what we're like when we're rooted in the Word, drawing life, nourishment. We flourish like a tree planted by rivers of waters. One of my favorite words and studies this week out of Psalm 1 verse 3 is where it talks about the seasons. He says there's different seasons to the tree. One of the misconceptions of the modern church is that if you love Jesus, your life is always going to be happy. Your life is always going to be easy. It's always going to be great. You're not going to have any problems in your life. But notice he says there's even different seasons for this tree. It doesn't mean that in every season the tree brings forth fruit. But at the right season, at the right time, it brings forth fruit. Maybe right now you're in a season where you're not bringing forth a lot of fruit. Life just doesn't seem to be going your way spiritually or any other way. And you're thinking, man, life is tough. If it says here that if I, am, if I meditate on God's word that I'm going to bring forth fruit, but let's not forget in the proper season. This may be a season of pruning for you. This may be a season where it's winter. This may be a season where you're supposed to grow your roots deeper instead of wider. But nevertheless, the righteous person is connected to the eternal truth of God's word, and they flourish like a tree. Well, then he compares this to the last half of Psalm 1, to the wicked person. Going back to our illustration of the, tree, or of the paper that's folded in half from top to bottom. The bottom half of this psalm, he describes the wicked person. What is the wicked person like? Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked person is like dry chaff. Verse 4 compares back to verse 3. Instead of being like a flourishing tree, it's, it's like the husk of grain that's indigestible. It's like the shell or the pod or the wrapping around wheat or oats or barley. It's easily blown away. This week we were trying to think of the best way to describe chaff. My intern and I, Casey, were thinking through how can you describe chaff to modern people? I don't think I have ever, I don't think, seen chaff. Uh, how many of you have ever seen somebody grind like the old-fashioned mill? Has anybody seen uh, how maybe bread is made that way? Okay, yeah, a number of you have. I never have. But uh, I have been to Logan's Roadhouse, and I've seen the peanuts. I have been to Texas Steakhouse and seen the peanuts, right? What do you do there? You go, and, and they tell you you can throw it on the floor, um, but then they always like give you a bucket. So maybe you're that person that feels guilty about throwing him in the floor. But hey, you look around, everybody else is doing it. You know, kind of like your mom said, if everybody jumped off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge? Sure you would. So you take the, you, you, you 
take the peanuts and you, you crum, crumble them up, and you don't do this, but you could, I guess, blow the shell into the floor. It's the same idea from what I understand with making grain or, or making bread from grain. You, you, you take the, the husk is blown away in the wind. In ancient times, they had these big like pitchforks, and they would throw it up in the air, and the wind would take away all the light, unusable waste, and it would leave what had substance. Now, we know in God's Word that every human being is valuable to God. God has made every person in His image, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. But let's face it, a person who lives their entire life and they have everything that the world promises and they have all the success that any man or woman could want, if they don't yet put their faith in Christ at the end of their life, what is it all worth? And in Psalm 1, a thousand years before Jesus, this psalm was intended to, to invoke the thought of worthlessness. It's empty. It's just it's gone. And he describes further the wicked person in verses 5 and 6, talking about being gone. They're going to be separated from the righteous. In verse 1, the righteous person separates from them. But in verses 5 and 6, God separates one day in the judgment them from the righteous. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. You lawyers understand this idea of, a, of somebody's innocence or their case standing in court. It says the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. If you're underlining in your Bible or if you're taking notes, underline, I encourage you to underline the last word in verse 6 and the first word in verse 1. He's comparing these two extremes and says today, yeah, he didn't use the name Rick or Will, but he's saying there is a righteous man and a righteous woman, and they are blessed, they are fulfilled, they are satisfied. And then he compares it all the way to the end. There's an unrighteous man or woman, and they are not, but they will perish this is a weighty matter. And so we, we ask ourselves, I don't think any of us got out of bed today and certainly wouldn't have come to church to say, hey, Matt, how can I be the unrighteous, wicked person who perishes? No, we wouldn't ask that. But what we will ask is, how can I be the righteous man or woman who is blessed? How can that be me? How can I be fulfilled? How can I prosper in life and know my meaning and be grounded? Well, that's what he tells us in verse 2 in your outline. You see there, how does this take place? How is this accomplished? By meditating on God's Word. By meditating on God's Word. Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Meditation is the emphasis in the Bible. 
there are really only three different sections to the Old Testament. Uh, there's the law, that's what Moses gave, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Then there's what we call the, the writings, that's the Psalms, the Proverbs, etc. And then there's the prophets. And in every section of the Old Testament, it always opens with an emphasis on God's Word. Think about Genesis 1. And God said over and over again, let there be light. Let there be whatever. You, you go over to the prophets, and the prophets we find in, in Joshua chapter 1, we see Joshua, the, the historical side of the prophets, begins by says, if you want to prosper, meditate on God's word. And now the Psalms open with the same. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. What does it mean to delight in God's word? It's the same as it means to delight in anything in life. What do you delight in? Maybe you delight in cinnamon biscuits from Bojangles. You delight in your children. You delight in vacation. You delight in your motorcycle. God's created us just to understand what delight is, but he invites us to delight and meditate in God's word. Meditate means to deliberate, to reflect, to muse on God's word. I put together this week an acrostic. I was thinking about how can I be a pastor of greater meditation? Sermons aren't just for you. Usually they're for me first, and then they get to you. So I was thinking, how can I as a pastor meditate more on God's word? And I'm a guy who likes a, a process. I'm more of a process guy. I want to know, hey, how do I do this? So we put together an outline uh, this week to help me and help you. Here's some practical tips for meditating on God's word. It came up with the word humble. What does humble have to do with meditation? I have no idea. I'm sure it involves, it's in there somewhere. But these letters just kind of came together. So first of all, how do you meditate? Let me encourage you to find your happy place. Find your happy place. In order to meditate on God's Word or be in the Scriptures, this isn't something you've got to be uncomfortable to do. For me, it's often my back porch with a cup of coffee and just waiting for a deer to come running out of the woods. That's a happy place. Maybe for you, it's at lunch, it's in your office with your door closed. Maybe it's your front porch. Uh, maybe it's somewhere guys out in the woods. Maybe it's by the lake. Maybe it's, but whatever that is, find a place where you can shut off the world and just listen to God. The you, unplug. We're talking about shutting off. How many of you get email on your phone? Anybody get email on your phone? All right, most of us do. Now, I didn't plan to ask this, but I'm curious. How many of you have it set to where it automatically pops in? Anybody do that? Okay. I have it set to it automatically pop in, and I check it regularly. I have a real problem, right? So there's actually a thing. It's an addiction. When you can be, we can be the type of people that constantly, every few minutes, have to be needed to where we have to see somebody email us or text us. We like have to have it. I didn't realize how low I had gone until I was away for two weeks on vacation. So for 15 days, I had my phone off. And for the first few days, like, I'm like looking for a phone that I can like 
just, honey, let me just see your phone so I can just push the, the red button. I need to be needed. And maybe that's you. If that is you, whatever is you, your phone, if it's possible, it's not always possible, but where God invites us to solitude and silence, to unplug, even if it's for, for 20 minutes. Music. I threw music in there. Some of you on Twitter gave me some great suggestions this week. Music. Uh, more of the younger generation enjoys listening to music while they think. And that's why we do it some here in church. You'll see from time to time where we're, we pray or we're reading the scripture and there'll be music. And sometimes we don't get the volume right. I realize it's louder than the scripture reader. We're working on all that constantly. Uh, but if that's not you, you can, you can do meditate in silence. But a lot of us like to listen to some background music while we read the scriptures. Maybe that'll help you. Breathing deeply. Had a great question this week from one of our members, godly, one of our godly members, and just asking, hey, you know, where does like breathing and deep breathing fit into this whole idea of meditation? Great question. And I'd like to think that, you know, what has come out of some of our Far Eastern religions didn't originate uh, with them or didn't originate even in the New Age movement. But it's hard to tell what Adam or Enoch and some of those knew. Nevertheless, God cares about our bodies, and breathing can be part of meditation. And then listening to God's Word. Um, maybe you have the Bible app. You can listen to the Bible app. I'm more of like an auditory learner, so I love to listen throughout the week as I drive in my car. Sometimes I'll even do my devotions by listening to the Bible instead of just sitting in one place and reading the Bible. Maybe that'll help you. But even if you're not a listener of the audio app, you can at least listen to God speak to your heart. You know, when we stop and we unplug and turn everything else off and let the Lord just speak to us, it's amazing what comes up. Maybe you, you don't enjoy silence because you know as soon as there's silence, you're going to think things that you don't want to think. But what would it look like to let those thoughts come up and then give those to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, these are the thoughts, these are the anxieties, these are the worries. And we meditate by listening to God's Word. And lastly, we meditate by echoing God's Word. That may be taking a short, simple phrase. You could start this week with Psalm 1. Read it over and over again and just echo it back to God and say, God, use this in my life to speak to my heart. I hope that helps. Whatever helps you meditate on God's Word, that's the how. The psalmist says we want to be rooted into the stream. It comes through God's Word and meditation. I think lastly, it's helpful to ask, why is this such a big deal? We have spent now seven weeks going through, emphasizing through various passages, trying to make a big deal about the Bible. Some sermons have been apologetic and giving you reasons and logic, and other sermons have been devotional. Why is it so important to God that we let the Bible be a part of our lives? The answer is in verse 1. He says in verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. If you're taking notes in your outline, the answer there is he wants me to be blessed. God wants me to be 
blessed. Literally, verse 1 could read this way. Oh, the blessedness of the man who delights in my word. It's emphatic. God started this book of 150 psalms, 150 prayers with this emphasis that he wants you to be blessed. What does it mean that he wants us to be blessed? This Hebrew word refers to the happiness that God-given security and prosperity produce. It's fulfillment, supreme happiness found in the person of God. It refers to total fulfillment and satisfied well-being. Your life, it means it has meaning. It has substance. Is everything easy? No, but you're growing and flourishing. And Psalm 1 says it is possible for you to be blessed. I love the famous quote that says, Two men looked out through prison bars. Two men looked out through prison bars. One saw mud and the other stars. What's the difference between the two men? What's the difference? Is the difference their circumstances? No. Is the difference the bars? No. Is the difference the mud? No. The scenery? No. The difference is what's inside the men. Bible-centered church will never be a church that preaches that if you do these two or three things, that all of a sudden health and wealth and smiles and this plastic smile will come upon your face and you can live the rest of your life as if there is no care in the world. We'll never be a church that preaches that because Jesus never preached that. But what we want to do is be a church that prepares you now on Sunday for what you're going to face on Monday. Pastor Matt Garrison, our family pastor, is like the voice for Monday in our staff meetings. He is constantly asking, and it's sometimes he's in the service and I love him. It's you know, annoying at times, but it's helpful. He, sorry, love you, bro. He'll be like, hey, how does this affect us on Monday? You know, because like as a pastor, doing this now for 15 years, I'm constantly thinking about Sunday. You know, and we'll spend 80 hours a week preparing for Sunday and like 30 minutes to help you on Monday. And he's like, we have got to be a church that prepares you on Monday. And one of the ways we prepare you is to say, life stinks, but Jesus satisfies And some of you right now know exactly what I'm talking about. You are going through deep trials and deep waters, and you are discouraged, you are depressed, and you came in today thinking this could be your last Sunday. You're going to give God one more chance. And what I'm trying to preach is that as you get in the Word and you hear the heart of God, it doesn't make life any easier, but it does give you meaning to know that you have a purpose for existence, that you have a ministry, that you have a meaning, and that God is working a plan in the darkness, even when you can't see it. C.S. Lewis got this. He got this when he wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, it's a long quote, it's not on the screen, but in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, C.S. Lewis writes, if you were 
But if you are a poor creature, some of us, all of us to some degree, have been affected and influenced by our brokenness. He says, if you are a poor creature poisoned by a wretched upbringing in a house full of vulgar jealousies and senseless quarrels, for some of you that resonates, for some of us we had great Christian homes, but we still have brokenness in our hearts. He says, if you are saddled by no choice of your own with some loathsome sexual perversion, nagged day in and day out by an inferiority complex that make you snap at your best friends, do not despair. God knows all about it. You are one of the poor whom he has blessed. He knows what a wretched machine you are trying to drive. You ever have those days? Keep on. Do what you can. One day, God will fling it on the scrap heap and give you a new one. And then you may astonish us all in the resurrection, especially yourself. Why is this so important? Because God wants you to experience blessing. Before we're done, I'm kind of curious now with just a minute left in the sermon. Um, take just a minute and think for yourself, how does this sermon make me feel? Hopefully, the last few minutes have made you feel encouraged. But when you think about going out this week to meditate on God's Word and being, be a righteous person, the emphasis of our sermon, the main point of our sermon is, if you're taking notes, is, is try to meditate on God's Word. How does it make you feel when you think about whether or not you can do it? Even as I was wrestling through Psalm 1 this week, thinking through, man, as a pastor, I want to meditate more on God's Word. The reality is there's going to be days when I don't. Maybe there's going to be days that you don't. And so maybe you, you're thinking, yeah, I want to meditate on God's Word. The humble acrostic really helped me, Pastor, but I know I'm not going to be able to do it perfectly. The truth is I'm not going to be able to either. So what hope do any of us have? The answer comes in a story from about 100 years ago of a pastor who got a chance to preach or speak to a group of Jews and Arabs in Palestine. Harry Ironside tells the story. This pastor was curious about what he would say to a group of Jews and a group of Arabs all in the same place. And so it was, it was a respectfully cordial uh, gathering. And so he chose as his passage Psalm 1. You can't go wrong with Psalm 1. He felt that everybody present could agree with Psalm 1. And he got up and he eloquently spoke through Psalm 1. And then somebody at the end of the lesson asked the question, which is always like the preacher's nightmare, right? Somebody raises their hand. Ask the question, who is Psalm 1 about? And so instead of just saying, let's all pray, and Jesus, you know, like we were trained to do, he, said, he addressed the question. He said, well, let's think about that for a minute. And he asked, could Psalm 1 be about Abraham? And of course, one of the, uh, one of the, the Arabs said, no, uh, it's not, couldn't be about Abraham. Um, Abraham didn't do this perfectly. Abraham lied. Abraham lost his faith. Abraham wasn't a perfect man. And so then he asked the question, could this be about Moses? Certainly, Psalm 1 is about Moses. 
And one of the Jews said, no, it couldn't be about Moses because Moses broke God's commandments. He doubted God. He murdered a man. Someone couldn't be about Moses. What about David? Did David live this perfectly? And obviously the answer is no, it couldn't be about David. And there was a Messianic Jew or a Messianic believer uh, who in the crowd, a Jew who believed in Jesus, who raised his hand and he said, Pastor, I think I know who Psalm 1 is about. And he knew the answer, but was going to let the guy address the crowd himself. And he stood and said, Psalm 1 must be about Jesus Christ. He's the only one who could fulfill this perfectly. Think about it. In Psalm 40, David said, I delight to do thy will, O God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. And by the time you get to the end of David's life, he had already messed it up. But then you go over to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 7 through 9, and Jesus prayed the same prayer. I delight to do thy will, O God, yea, thy law is within my heart. Jesus meditated and quoted Scripture in the morning. He meditated and quoted Scripture at night. Even while dying on the cross, what is Jesus doing? The seven last sayings of Christ are Scripture. Most believe that on the cross, Jesus quoted Psalm 22. And most believe that when Jesus said, I have the water of life that I can give you that you'll never thirst again, most believe he was referring to Psalm 1. How in the world can we have the water of life? The answer is because on a cross, Jesus said, I thirst. Jesus took your drought so that you could have eternal water. And he died on the cross for your sins. He was buried and rose again the third day. And today, I hope this sermon gave you some practical tips about meditating on God's word. And believers, may it send us out afresh and renewed to get in the word. But more importantly, may it help you see that you can't fulfill this on your own. Only Jesus can make you whole. Believe in him today. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I thank you for the promise of your word. I pray you would help those in our audience today, in the worship gathering today, who don't yet know you as Savior, that don't yet know your Son. I pray that they would put their faith in Jesus today. If that's you, with heads bowed and eyes closed, right there where you sit, I'm going to give you the opportunity to pray and accept Christ. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's no set prayer in the Bible to be a Christian, but I'll pray these words, and I invite you to pray with me in your heart and accept Christ who died for your sins and wants you to eternally flourish. Won't you pray these words with me? Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. I know I can never be fulfilled on my own. But I believe you love me and sent your son to save me. I believe Jesus died on the cross and rose again to give me life. Please come into my life and make me a Christian. 
and help me to start walking in your word. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's you, would you let us know? I'm going to be out in the gathering space after the service, out by the front doors. You just simply say, Pastor, I prayed that prayer. Maybe just give me your number or reach out to me this week in an email. We'll get together. I'd love to encourage you in your newfound faith. That's why we're here. Christian, let's, before we sing this last song, pray meditatively through Psalm 1. Father, we as your people want to be blessed. Help us to not walk in the counsel of the wicked. God, protect us from worldly influence, from letting it sink into our heart. You've called us to be in the world, at work, with our neighbors. But help us not be of the world. Help us not to do the lifestyle of sinners or, or sit in the seat of scoffers. God, help us not to mock your word and mock your truth and mock other people. But help us to delight in your word this week. Give Give Bible Center Church folks wisdom on how they can best meditate this week to take one simple step. Help us to be like trees planted by streams of water. We have a long way to go. And I as a fellow traveler have a long way to go. Help us to meditate so that six months, one year, Ten years from now, Jesus tarries. We're stronger Christians because we've meditated on your word. Help us to not be like the wicked. People who have no substance. People who have no weight. We want to be people that know you and be known by you. Lord, we pray for the wicked in our city who are on their way to perish. Help us. Help them by pointing them to Jesus, the water of life. It's in his name we pray, and amen. Will you stand with me?